The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub and one of our regular fellow in focus sessions where we talk to our current or previous fellows who've been in residence at the Hub. Uh, And I'm really pleased that in uh, this session, we're going to invite back and talk to uh, Dr. Lilith Acadia. Many of you will have known Lilith while she was uh, in residence with us here at the Trinity Long Room Hub. She was one of our three Marie Curie co-fund fellows from last year. And while she was here in the hub, she researched the concept of pretext. Uh, She's since taken up a lectureship at the National Taiwan University. And we're gonna be hearing more about both those things in some detail a little bit later on. But just to give you a flavor of Lilith's uh, very diverse work uh, as a a cultural critic, I'm gonna invite uh, my colleague, uh, Jacob Erickson, who is a lecturer in the uh, School of Religion, to read a little piece of uh, Lilith's material for us. Jacob, let me hand over to you. Uh, how are you connected to Lilith and what are you going to read for us? Uh, great. Yeah, this is, I, I uh, met Lilith when uh, she was here for, for her, her fellowship and gave a really exquisite lecture in the School of Religion on uh, a number of really interesting and connected points to our work there. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be reading a, an excerpt from uh, the piece Conquering Love, Failed Xenophilia in Brian Friel's translations. Elizabeth Bishop's depiction of xenophilia in the poem Questions of Travel regards people as, quote, determined to rush to see the sun the other way around, with which she conveys not merely a desire to see or know the other, but to see the universe through the metonym of the sun from the perspective of the other. This other is generalized, marked by its distinct perspective on the sun, rather than being a particular other with specific characteristics. We desire to see from the perspective of this other because it is not us, simply because it is foreign. And that is why we are able to rush. The traveler achieving that perspective would write herself onto the other but the perspective that Bishop defines is unattainable. Xenophilia is doomed to fail since realized love makes the love object known and no longer foreign, thus excising the Xenos from Xenophilia. Friel's play demonstrates such failure. Yalin's translation fails beloved places and names. Mara fails her lover who disappears and their kiss fails to preserve otherness. Then the play leaves the audience with a delicate situation. The imperialist British army is advancing in case Yolland does not appear, a threat that Friel leaves looming when the stage goes black. Yolland may yet reappear and somehow find a way to realize his love of a foreigner and her island without the resulting intimacy causing his love to become something other than xenophilia. Alternatively, xenophobia may triumph if Yoland is not found and Lancy raises Beliabeag, or Captain Lancy could succumb to xenophilia and spare the town. 
if the failure of xenophilia comes with the fulfillment of the xenophile's love, it would follow that xenophilia must be unrequited to remain xenophilia. If xenophilic love is reciprocated and realized, the love object becomes a particular individual rather than a generalized other. For a land or language, the lover will always be an unattainable other, as Yaland appears to recognize when he declares, I give up. De Beauvoir describes heterosexual romantic love as the realization of alterity. Each one torn from the self becomes the other. For xenophilia, alterity is by definition necessary, leaving the xenophilic lover in thoroughly romantic paradox, which, like translations itself, defies resolution. Well, thank you very much, Jacob, for reading that. And of course, Brian Frail's Translations is a play that many people will know, but perhaps not have thought of in, in terms of this love relationship that's not only between characters, uh, but between two countries, between Ireland and England, frustrated, compromised, perhaps doomed uh, within that category of a difficult otherness um, that Lilith uh, describes in a really wonderful article that she's written on that subject. And I think uh, that work shows um, that, that we have a fellow who is extremely versatile and flexible in her ability to make her understanding of cultural concepts applicable to a number of different cultural and, and national um, situations. But Lilith, let me, let me begin by welcoming you back to the hub, uh, your second home, and to ask you to talk a little bit about what brought you to the hub in the first place, and particularly this concept of pretext, which was the focus of your research. And it's a concept that we might know from old style studies of rhetoric, we might know it from linguistics, uh, but you approached it in a very distinctive way. I wonder if that's a good place to start. Pretext, what do we to understand? Well, thank you, Eve. It's such a joy to return, albeit virtually, to the hub. Um, and thanks also to Francesca for coordinating. Um, and the reason that I wanted to come to the hub is this mixture of interests revolving around pretext. So as you alluded to in your comments, and as I hope was clear from Jacob's reading, thank you for that. Um, I am bringing together an interest in literary studies that's actually new in my scholarly work and a background in studies of religion and philosophy um, and German studies. So. The hub gave me this opportunity to be in a cross-disciplinary environment where I could develop the concept of pretext outside of the rhetoric department where I had done my PhD. So pretext, as I define it, is when you give a justification for an action or a belief, a stance, or an identity, now centrally in my work, that does not reflect the motivating reasons. So perhaps it is a way to manipulate the audience, or perhaps it is a distraction to veil what is actually motivating um, the justification. And in my work in my PhD, I was looking at how religion is used as a pretext to justify imperialist violence. And that's a theme in Friel's translations. 
how the religious tensions play into the imperial dynamic and how there are also elements of, of love and of desire to know. And that's part of the tangles of the imperial project that there can be these justifications of wanting to know the other culture. And I think the field of anthropology and its origins is a good demonstration of this, that what may have been motivated by a desire to find ways to better imperialize has also the justificatory power of wanting to know the other, wanting to understand how they live, even if that's then leveraged to exploit the local population or to take control. And at the hub, these interactions with other fellows and um, the faculty at Trinity, the wonderful early career researchers, let me explore pretext in all of these different ways towards literature, towards religious studies with Jacob. And I could not have asked for a more intellectually rich environment to just broaden what pretext meant in my work. Well, I, I hear you on that, Lilith, and I want to, do want to ask you a little bit more about your community at the Hub um, in greater detail. But uh, one of the things that's so interesting about the way you approached uh, a, a, an abstract concept, that of pretext, was that you embedded it in a, a literary history and a, a piece of scholarship around a same-sex relationship in the 20th century uh, between a novelist and a, a scholar of religion. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the Northamptonshire marriage that you um, that you uh, worked on while you were at Trinity. I'd love to. This started as a, a fun project after my PhD that I was done with pretext and I wanted to do something that would let me go into the archive and just lose myself in stories. And of course, as with academic projects, it didn't turn out that way. And I realized in reading these stories, the papers, that it was all about pretext. So I had to come back to my earlier work. Um, Mary Ellen Chase, the novelist, and Eleanor Shipley Duckett uh, were professors at Smith College, where I did my undergraduate. And I had heard their names as an undergraduate because there is a pair of adjoining houses named after them, but I didn't really have a sense of who they were or their relationship. And I think that that mystery around them is part of their story because living in between the US and England in the mid 20th century as these successful academic women and also upstanding Christian citizens in their community, their relationship was not primary. In fact, their dog, Westie, their West, little Westie, um, Gregory the Great, was on par uh, in their relationship. People would write letters um, to Mary Ellen asking, how is Eleanor and Gregory? And they, they spoke about themselves, not as a thruple, to use the contemporary terminology, but just um, a family situation that wasn't really a family, you know two professors and their dog. Um, what greater love can there be in the world? No. Uh, so this relationship was mysterious and hidden, and it almost felt um, a little improper to be prying into it. But the Smith College archives and the Maine Women's Writers Collection had 
all sorts of materials um, from their letters to friends and editors to also early drafts of Mary Ellen Chase's writing. And I realized that this was another opportunity to bring together my different interests because the history of the time and their literature and also their scholarly works on Christianity, for example, were all connected in revealing this identity. And it really showed how their identities could not fit carefully into easy boxes of what we might call lesbian or what we might call American because their identity was so much richer and they were building these lives for themselves and these senses of self that had much more to do with their intellectual lives and their networks. So it really introduced me to the, the part of pretext that was around identity, which was something I hadn't focused on before and is now becoming a prominent theme in my work as I move to other projects as well. And I would credit the identities and transformation theme at Trinity in really showing me how valuable tracing identity formation and concealment and development can be. And let me ask you a little bit more about that approach, because obviously in, in literary studies and literary history, we're much more adept now, I suppose, at problematizing categories of identity, uh, whether they're sexual, whether they're racial, national, whatever approach you want. And we have a vocabulary, it might not be quite sufficient yet, but we have a vocabulary in which to do that. And in a way, I suppose the literary landscape is a, is a safer space to explore that kind of question. But you also derived a lot of your ideas about pretext uh, from studying religion and how religion uses uh, uh, itself as a pretext for conducting violence or inspiring violence or, or um, uh, linking itself to, uh, to violent disturbance. Uh, you've looked, for example, at um, discourses on, on the veil in North Africa around women and the use of women's bodies within religion in this context. This is a much more difficult set of applications of your idea of pretext. And I wonder, um, did you manage to balance the slightly more dangerous material you were doing around religion with the, what I'm calling the safer uh, territory of, of studying this in terms of literature and literary history? Well, one of the reasons that I really love working with literature is that you know that the authors put so much thought into selecting exactly what they're presenting. And in the work that I did on veiling, I looked also at the legal aspect. And I think there as well, we have this opportunity to have texts that are very carefully thought out. Um, and that work came from a course that I did in my master's with Nazila Ganea, whom I hope to interview also for the Public Sphere podcast right. in a few months. Um, but she gave me this, this way of approaching law as a text that I think mirrors in many methodological ways how we can approach literature as a text. And when you're looking at something so carefully written as a piece of literature or as a law, you really can read into it also the, the whole discourse behind that text and what was produced. So in looking at how um, for example, European countries like France and the Netherlands were approaching the Nechab, the lower face veil. That shows not only for this specific law, 
but also the, the cultural assumptions that go along with it and the responses to North African veiling discourse and the misunderstandings. When looking at religion and identity, I think it's important to remember that they are both constructed. And so seeing how religion is used, whether by religious organizations or governments or legal discourse or in literature, it's important to remember that this is part of the construction, that every text is part of understanding what that law is or understanding what literature is. And so there can be mirroring methodologies for how we study literature and how we study law and how we study religion. So for me, I see it's all inter interwoven and informing each other. And of course, we know at an abstract level that what you say is absolutely true, that, that all of these discourses, legal, religious, literary, historical, all come down to the text and our interpretation, our work on the text, what it can hide, what it can reveal. We all have enough theory to know that. But I think the value of the work that you did at the Hub and you're still doing, Lilith, is you show us, you give us templates for actually putting that into research action, if you like, for actually showing us what it looks like when you do take the text apart in that way and with that intention. And it's been interesting uh, just in the last couple of years to see these discourses come together from that textual focus. Uh, I know that uh, my colleague in law, David Kenny, for example, teaches a very interesting course on law and literature uh, from exactly the focus or the aspect that you're talking about. Um, it was very important, I think, that you uh, kept that literary focus in your work, but also it had an archival, a strong archival element. You were actually going back to, as you've mentioned, the, uh, the Smith special collections and the main women's writers material, uh, but also there was material in Trinity Library itself that you were keen to draw on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's one of the things that, you know, we really hope for in, in fellows who come to visit us here, that they're able to use what, uh, what our library holds, its terrific holdings. It was really a gift to be able to spend a few months in the Trinity Libraries because um, the collections have materials that you won't find in university libraries, even the Berkeley Library um, elsewhere. As a repository library, they should receive everything published in English um, from, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the UK, Ireland, the US, Canada, South Africa, Australia. So you have these incredible holdings, not only of contemporary material, which may be easier to find now that we have eBooks, but also historical material. So I was just thrilled to be able to hold in my hands uh, Mary Ellen Chase's books from the 1950s that were in the, um, the special collections for being so ancient, uh, but that I wasn't able to find that are no longer in print. And when I had initially done the research in the archives in the US, I thought that would be sufficient. And then bringing in the literary aspect, I realized that that wasn't enough. And I, I really needed to read Chase's own writings. Um, and the Trinity Libraries gave me the opportunity some of my colleagues at the Hub had projects that allowed them to go into the archives and see medieval manuscripts and just these incredible objects that you really can't find anywhere else in the world. And I have a little bit of envy for them. Um, perhaps theirs was a bit more exotic than mine, but it was also a joy just to go in with them and see what the archive was like. 
and um, exactly. to visit the libraries around Dublin. Exactly. And of course, it's something we're always telling our students and our researchers to, you know, to have the physical book or manuscript, not quite in your hand if it's a manuscript, but, but in front of you, uh, no matter how good a digital reproduction is, it's never quite the same. And I'm sure that, that romantic appeal of, of the library and, as you say, having it in your hands um, makes such a difference. It gives you that impulse in research, doesn't it? That uh, I think is something we, we need to treasure. Um, of course, you didn't just spend time in the library while you were at the hub. You were, as a fellow, extremely active, uh, Lilith, across all kinds of things. And you uh, are one of those people who managed to be in several places at once and have boundless energy. Um, but, but many things that you engaged in with the community here included uh, the new podcast series, The Hublet Sphere. I know you've been involved with that. You were part of the feminist science fiction reading group. Uh, I think you've just done a Rethinking Democracy podcast, if that's, uh, if that's correct. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about these, let's call them ancillary activities that, that went alongside your research. How do you see the kind of academic role that a Marie Curie uh, co-fund fellow occupies in terms of all of these offshoot productions or activities or engagements? Do you see these as central to what you were doing or do you see these as peripheral? Are they just delightful add-ons or did they inform your, your, the core of your, of your research activity? They absolutely shaped not only my experience at the Hub, but more importantly for my scholarly career, the way that I do research. So the place where the Hub most pushed me is towards the is towards developing a way to present my research for the public. Um, the public facing humanities projects were really important, as you mentioned before, in finding other ways to apply and present my work on pretext and also thinking about scholarship in general. So the science fiction reading group um, and the public sphere podcast are two ways that I'm still involved in the hub community we're still holding meetings and producing podcasts. I encourage you all to go to the Hub website or to the SoundCloud page and listen. We have now three episodes up for the Hublic Sphere podcast. Um, and that work is not only important for building an intellectual community. I could not be more grateful to have had the opportunity to work with Don Seymour Kloss and Siobhan Callahan, Zahar Ahmed, Claire Moriarty and Elizabeth Foley on the podcast. It has been a highlight of my time as a Hub Fellow, but it also informs how I now think about what research is, what publication is. And we had these long discussions about the changing face of peer review. And so this seems like a very um, central feature of academic work that we just take for granted what the peer review is. And in talking with the podcast group about it, I was also thinking about how we evaluate scholarly work. Mm -hmm. And that is so formative in thinking about how to present our work and how to make it legible, not only to the public audience, but also our peers who are familiar with the materials. So it has been as transformative as 
taking my first philosophy of science class where they said, now, are we sure the thesis is where we should start? Um, so it's really just reshaped my whole approach to work and been a fantastic experience in building community. And I really admire the work behind, I was lucky to be part of um, one behind the headlines conversation and then a short podcast recently on rethinking democracy. And that whole project is so rich and promising and a way for the hub to reach across continents to really engage with scholars elsewhere. And that has been a true gift to be involved with and to think about how we bring our scholarship to the classroom and to the public sphere. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about this, Lilith, in tandem with what's going on at the moment as we begin to make some, some very difficult steps towards open scholarship and as we begin to think about new ways of assessing and evaluating research, uh, which really update the way we engage as an academy with the wider public. And uh, of course, this is something that the Hub is having to think about a lot at the moment in relation to what our function is, what our value is to society, uh, and how we do cross that bridge out into a wider world um, from our research. And, and one of the things that, that you were able to do in this regard was adapt your central research premise, the concept of pretext, to what happened when the pandemic struck uh, and you were able to respond and to write about uh, public health advice in terms that involved your understanding of pretext. I know that you did an op-ed which was published by the Irish Times in which you looked at this in some detail and I think you did a radio interview as well. So you were very much uh, managing to fulfill the brief of the, the public uh, academic in that regard. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what it meant that you were able to bring your research into line with a, a, a global crisis and, and use your understanding of pretext to respond to and comment on a global crisis, but also whether in the months that the pandemic has continued, you've changed any of your views or positions or opinions, or you would revise the, the, uh, the, the piece that you wrote for the Irish Times in any way. I'm not suggesting you should, I'm just interested as so much of our world has changed just in the last six months. Yes, I think that any, any scholar or indeed any student who takes a course on deconstruction and then goes around annoying all their friends um, can recognize when we, when we become passionate about something, that's our hammer and everything's a nail. So of course, studying pretext, I would constantly read the news and say, that's a pretext or um, you know, analyze the world through that lens. And so in a way it was very easy for me to see how pretexts were playing a part in the discourse around the COVID pandemic. And the challenge then was translating that to the public audience for the op-ed and for the radio show. Um, and when I was writing it, I really was just taking an analytical approach to what I saw in the situation. And I would revise that now that I've seen that some of my critiques have become right-wing talking points. And it's really important lesson then as a scholar to know that you never know who, and I'm not saying that they read my article in the Irish Times and then decided that was a great idea, but you never know who's going to read your work and then use it as they will. 
And I would focus now, and I, I did focus on the recent return in the podcast that Ellie invited me to do, um, on how the situation where we find ourselves in this pandemic can be used then as a pretext to ignore other pressing matters. So I'm concerned about how getting out of the pandemic or recovering our economies after the pandemic might be used as a pretext to ignore the need for universal health care or student loan forgiveness and all around the world, the pressing need to address climate change. And so I would focus instead of on the civil liberties element, which I could have anticipated would have this appeal to libertarian audiences, I could have also focused or focused instead on how, as um, other scholarship has shown, how events like pandemic can be shocks that allow those in power to distract from the most pressing needs and to also exploit the moment to push through their own their own objectives. So I'm concerned about this in the US and um, I did speak with Ellie about this. And I think that we are always revising our scholarship. The danger is when it becomes so public um, that it's harder to step back. Well, exactly. <laughs> that's, that, that's why it's interesting to hear you talk about it because it's all very well to have aspirations and, and good intentions to engage and to put your, your scholarship and your opinions into the public domain. But it doesn't always play out the way that you might expect. We're not in the controlled environment of the university and behind the walls that make it safe um, or safe-ish, let's say. I wonder, I mean, if you had one, um, one takeaway from the idea of being that public scholar, one thing that might help other people if they're thinking of trying to engage in the same way, what would that be? Was there anything that you learned about um, the, the road you were on at that time and have been on in the last six months that you could offer as advice to, to other people trying to, again, go out to real world issues? Well, while I was at the Hub, I had the opportunity to take part in a training for the conversation, um, which is a news source that distributes art, short articles written by academics on contemporary topics. And in thinking about how to produce public facing scholarship for that, and also in the experience that I had over the summer, I would say the biggest takeaway is really stick with your field and where you're confident. And I guess this is also my advice to most of my first year composition students, like really stick on the topic. Don't make general um, claims about the whole history of humanity or <laughs> poetry in general, but that safety of your own scholarly sphere, not only is a way to protect yourself from being misunderstood, but is also a way to make your work more powerful because mm -hmm. that is where you are the expert and where you can speak from a, a place where you can actually give valuable insights. And, and you've put that so beautifully and, and it's a conversation we've been having recently about impact and how we make the idea of impact work for us rather than just being a kind of box ticking exercise in academia. So. Again, Lilith, you know, thanks for reflecting on that. Now, you've, you've mentioned uh, teaching. I know people are going to have more questions in a minute about your research, but you've mentioned teaching. Um, so let me just spend a few minutes talking about what's happened. We're really towards the end of your, your uh, time at the Hub and, and now in Taiwan. 
Um, first of all, you wanted to apply for a, an academic job um, at the end of your postdoc. Um, and I know that you prepared in a very particular way for that, Lilith. And I'm going back mm -hmm. to this because I think you were a model of sound preparation. I know you worked very closely with your mentors, including Jacob, uh, who we've heard from at Trinity in, in helping to uh, work on your application. Um, I mean, how did you approach the idea of moving from a postdoc position to a full academic job? I mean, what was your, what was your uh, game plan? Well, in your conversation with Claire Clark, um, she talked about being strategic and finding just the right fit. And I want to steal her job advice because that was really <laughs> my approach. And also the approach that looking back at several years on the job market, I would say is the best way, not only to successfully find a job, but also to make sure that you are happy in that position. And where I made mistakes at the beginning of my, in the first year of my job search was trying to apply everywhere. The first time I applied to 80 different positions and it was scattered and a little frantic. And then when I realized that it wasn't working, focusing on what was right for me. And it really came at a turning point where I thought, if I don't get an academic job, I need to think about what will make me happy. And then realizing, no, I need to figure out how an academic job will make me happy because it's not worth having if it's going to just be miserable. And so focusing in on a good match and a place where your values will be um, congruent with the other academics work and the teaching is so important. Mm. And so I would, recommend not necessarily looking at those job boards and the listings, but really finding, identifying where you would be a good fit and then pursuing that. So my friend Martin Sticker was a fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub, and he told me about what a vibrant place it was for interdisciplinary research where the humanities were truly valued and you didn't have to fit into a specific box. And so I kept looking at the Hub website and waiting for it to be updated with news of the fellowship applications. And I thought, this is such a long shot, I'll never get this. And then I was so lucky um, to get the CoFund fellowship. And similarly, in this last year, looking for jobs, I wanted to be someplace that the department valued both the critical theory background of my training at Berkeley, literature in conversation with religious studies and philosophy, but also continuing interdisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. And a friend told me about this department, um, the National Taiwan University Department for Foreign Languages and Literatures, and told me, just apply, just look. And I, again, kept updating the website every week until they posted the job. And I was lucky because the job was only open for 10 weeks, or sorry, 10 days. And so I was ready to go and I just threw myself into it. Um, I met with four members of the department while preparing my application. And if I hadn't done that, I would have made mistakes that prevented me from getting the job. And I just really, focused on that position that I knew was right for me. And I was so lucky that Philip Coleman in the School of English 
believed in this vision I had to be part of the department and he helped me in preparing myself, not only organizing a mock interview and inviting other faculty who gave just invaluable advice, but also talking through the process and talking through what it would mean. And without, truly, without that mock interview and Philip Coleman's advice, I don't think I would have been successful. So another element is also finding mentors who really support you and really believe in your work and your vision and with whom you click. And it's amazing how easy that was at Trinity. Um, perhaps it's the, the community of the university that I was incredibly lucky, not only with Philip Coleman, but also Jacob Erickson and Claire Tebbets. And they just were so warm and helpful and encouraged my research and my career aspirations. And I wish, I wish that every young scholar would be so lucky. Well, you know, I'm seeing nice comments appear in the in the panel and the Q&A about how we were lucky, Lilith, to have time working with you. And uh, we'll, we'll maybe we'll maybe get time to hear about Taiwan uh, in more detail. But but questions are coming in um, and uh, I've got most of them are just admiration. Um, but uh, Claire Moriarty, Claire, how are you doing? Very good to have you with us. Um, and uh, congratulations to you on the success of the Hubbard Sphere. But uh, but Claire is saying she wants to thank you, Lilith, for your mentorship, your mentorship to, I suppose, that team and your openness and friendliness while you were here, how scholarship should be. Um, and you've already, in a way, addressed that idea that when you come to Trinity as a scholar and to the hub, uh, you, you know, you need to be part of that community and to find ways of working with that community um, because it does reap rewards, doesn't it, as, as you've shown. Um, were there any problems that you ran into though while you were here in terms of, I suppose, aligning your research? Because the fact that you do cross between fields as a good interdisciplinary humanities scholar should sometimes can leave people feeling, well, where exactly do I fit in? Did you ever encounter that or feel that way? Absolutely. In previous institutions, I have worried about not being really a literary scholar or not fitting into religious studies and truly at Trinity there is so much openness to finding different paths in traditional disciplines or forging new disciplines and in making one's work legible to people within a small field that's a huge challenge if you don't necessarily know the, all of the discourses with which they're familiar and that's where the public facing scholarship is so valuable because when it's difficult to connect with specific disciplinary conversations, then framing your work in terms that the public would understand can really help cross those divides. And so I think the fellowship at the hub gave me the language and the tools to overcome that because not only was I working across disciplines, um, on a daily basis, but also learning how to talk in ways that were multidisciplinary. And the work at the Hub really demonstrates that. So, for example, the digital, digital humanities work at the Hub is all about finding ways to bring unusual methodologies to the humanities, or unusual for the humanities. But that can also model how to talk between humanities disciplines. And so that was so valuable. 
And also, I suppose, because you're a theorist and because you work in theory and you're informed in theory, you've written on, on queer theory, among other things, um, that is a common denominator. It is a common vocabulary uh, between the, the humanities disciplines, which sometimes is very useful. But I notice an interesting question um, that's uh, come in from Michael Bell-Fiedel. I think I pronounced that properly here by Michael. Uh, do you think the theory of scholarly object objectivity is a pretext? And if so, for what? Um, I would have asked, just Doctor, do you think theory itself is a pretext? But do you think the theory of scholarly objectivity is a pretext from Michael? Tricky one. <laughs> and one that I think is an important question for many fields to ask. So for historians to ask, and also for philosophers to ask. And where I'm most familiar with this discourse is from my work in philosophy and feminist epistemology, which, which does respond to this question um, with that field in mind of how we can use knowledge production to assert our own authority and our own authority to then determine the parameters of knowledge production. And I think that the feminist epistemological critique of that is that we can be careful and if we know how theory is being used as a pretext, and we can see how people are then using their position in the process of knowledge production to find authority or to exert power over others, that we can then still use theory productively. And I would hope that that's also extendable to other fields, that when we are thinking about how is the theory being used, um, anyone who's gone to graduate school is familiar with that person in seminar who says, oh, well, Foucault would say, and then that just derail, derails the conversation and it becomes really um, a, a name dropping exchange instead of a productive understanding the material, for example. So if you are identifying, oh, that's just name dropping, then you can bring the conversation back on track. And then in scholarly work, if you can identify this theory is just being used to fill a space in the paper, that's helpful. Or if it's being used as a pretext to gain authority or leverage power, then you can continue to work with the theory productively. Or I suppose, and this is to pick up one of the terms that you're so interested in, it's being used as a form of disguise. Um, you know, cloaking device for other things. And I think that that's something that, you know, we possibly all went through um, for a while with the, the advent of high theory and that we're slowly moving out of and, and using theory productively again and more selectively uh, and with more delicacy. I hope, I hope. And I know, Lilith, if you've been at uh, recent coffee mornings in the hub, uh, you've seen some very productive and, and very judicious use of, of theory in the work that scholars are doing at the moment. I want to come to um, a question from Melissa Homestead. Hi, Melissa. I know Lilith, she says that there were gaps in the Chase Duckett archive you didn't anticipate when you began your project. Uh, considering your remarks on decoding text, how have you come to understand or interpret archival absences? What a lovely question. What do we do when what we want to be there isn't there? I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate also that Melissa came. She was very helpful in the early framings of that project in 
helping me understand the relationships the whole network of people around Chase Stuckett. Um, and I was also very lucky in that project to have an archivist at the Maine Women's Writers Collection who explained some of the gaps in the archive and brought a personal perspective to that that has informed how I've seen it in this project. Because one of their nieces had the papers and then only was willing to donate them to the archives on condition that certain things be omitted and she potentially destroyed also other papers. And so that role of the family is part of this construction of identity because as the marriage ceremony shows, the community creates the couple. And equally in unmarried couples like Chase and Duckett, their whole network, their friends, their editors, their family, those who came after and left post-it notes in the archive. And of course, this niece who decided to omit um, personal letters, they are all part of determining how that identity is constructed as a text. That's a great answer. And it, it speaks to what we're watching at the moment as we enjoy the uh, Out of the Ashes series of lectures that the Hub mm -hmm. has been running with, with uh, Peter Crooks, of course. Uh, and you know the, the, the way in which the loss of archives on a major scale, as well as on the minor scale that, that you've had to deal with, the way in which that can be also a source for creative thinking, as well as a lament for what's not there, uh, is something that I'm only just becoming, uh, or only just coming to understand, I think. It's, um, it's a lovely facet of scholarship. What do we do with the gaps? What do we do with the lacunae? Um, lots of people are obviously keen, Lilith, to hear about Taiwan. This is uh, a really interesting move. Um, and uh, we all want to come visit you when we can travel again, of course. But can you tell us a little bit about how you found the new post and the country? I know Jane, Jane, I don't know which Jane you are, but if you're uh, Queen Jane, then uh, good to have you with us. Um, Jane says, wonderful to hear you. So I think it must be our Jane. What a fabulous conversation. I'd love to hear more about how things are going for you in Taiwan. Lilith, tell us, first of all, I mean, on a personal level, what's it been like to make a, you know, a, a cultural change and, a, and to work at such a distance, but also in terms of the department, because obviously one of the things that you're dealing with is a departmental or a faculty arrangement that's quite different. And when, you know, where things, for example, such as the language and linguistics and, and philology side of the humanities is brought much more into focus. So tell us, how are you getting on? What struggles have you had? What are the hidden delights of it all? I love it and I could go on and on, but I will spare you um, and try to keep it a little constructive. I think every day I express aloud how lucky I feel to be here, to be in a department where my colleagues are so wonderful and supportive and funny and the students are so excited and just eager to understand beyond what they know. And living in Taipei is, is wonderful. I can think of no better place right now to live for sure. November was just gorgeous and bicycling around, going to art exhibits, um, gallery openings, lectures, conferences. We are so lucky right now. And um, the students have made this transition back into teaching really wonderful. Also because they've shown me how 
in new ways, I can bring together not only my research and teaching, which I think we all try to do, but also my work in the public facing humanities. So for example, I'm teaching um, 20th century US literature. And one of the transitions that we talk about in the mid 20th century is the rise of children's literature. And I thought, of course, about your amazing lecture last year on T.H. White, when I was telling them about how there's then this mixing of what is literature and what is for children and the emergence of new genres. And right while we were talking about this in my class, Siobhan Callahan was recording her podcast on rereading children's literature and reading it in ways that I think we're not going to expect her to say. Um, and in, in listening to this podcast and thinking about my class, I was also reminded of a childhood friend, Sheila Cavanaugh, used to teach children's literature in the Emory English department, and I used to go to her class as a child um, to be the little experimental subject of what children are reading. And I was thinking about the experience of the students and this coming together of all the elements of my work and memories and rereading texts really made the whole moment much richer and helped me understand how I was going to move forward with my writing projects as well. Um, and you asked about this transition into a very different department. In some ways, being in Taiwan has been like being at the hub because there's this island culture of a small community where lots of people know each other and they're just so much more supportive than in the giant institutions of the US. And my department is massive. I think we have 80 tenure track and tenured faculty right now. And so it has this really transdisciplinary element that I missed from the hub. And then I'm finding anew that people have very different work and then you can have those conversations. It's also inspired new work. So the conversations in identities and transformations at Trinity led me, and then preparing for my interview in Taiwan led me to read um, a new book, Chu Maojin's Notes of a Crocodile. Yes. And, and I thought this just, this plays into my interest in um, how we define genre and um, moments of imperialism and transition. And then I was telling a, a colleague about this in the department and he said, oh yes, she was publishing while I was in college in Taipei and he brought this personal dimension to the book that I think I, I wouldn't have had at another institution, not only because now I'm in Taiwan, but just the experience of being in this small intellectual community where he remembered reading the book and he remembered the experience of this renaissance of post-martial law literature in Taipei at the universities. And it's, it's brought me into a new world that is exactly where I wanted to be in my scholarship and also a perfect place to be socially right now. And one of the things when I was reading about you discovering this book, The Crocodile Book, which sounds terrific, you know, this coming of age story about the university there, but in this strange period of transition, you know, from uh, a much more restrictive society to a much more liberal one, it's difficult for us now to know what your, I suppose, your, your political context, context is there. Are you able to 
do the kind of, I noticed we have a, we have a comment in from Eve Foley, is that Elaine Foley, about your brilliant live tweeting that you were, I think, famous for, Lilith, when you were at the Hub. Can you do that kind of public engagement now? Other routes and channels Absolutely. for you? I'm really glad you asked that um, because Taiwan, for all the international pressure, is its own country. And there is remarkable academic freedom, and they are very proud of their academic freedom, democratic freedom. And since the end of martial law in um, 1987, there has been a great national pride in making this a free society. And so I feel every academic freedom here, it's um, it's quite a contrast to before I came to the hub, I taught for a semester in Shanghai where every class was filmed and then observed by the university officials. And this has been quite the opposite. There's academic freedom, not only in the classroom that they're letting me teach music alongside literature and spoken word poetry alongside um, also the more traditional forms, but in also research. So I can, take my work in all these different directions and I am free to comment on the political elements. And of course, anyone in a different country knows the caution that you must exercise to not be um, the foreigner telling them <laughs> what's wrong with their society or um, critiquing too terribly. But so far I found very little to critique in Taiwan because it's just wonderful. That's so good to hear. It's just so encouraging to hear, and, and particularly for you, that you're not feeling restricted in any way. So you've got this open landscape in front of you, and I know we're, we're gradually moving uh, to a close, Lilith, but what does this mean for you to be there? What's next for you in terms of where you want to go as a scholar? Uh, are, you, are you going to root yourself back in a particular discipline? Are you going to stay mobile and diverse between uh, all the different fields of the humanities? Uh, have you got a particular book that you're you're itching to write? A course you want to teach? Where are things moving for you? One of the wonderful elements of this job is that they are really article focused. So the requirements for tenure are focused on articles rather than books. And so I'm setting aside my ideas for books for a moment. But this means that I can be as diverse in my research as I want to be. And one of the wonderful resonances with the hub is the encouragement to do research across disciplinary boundaries and with other scholars from other disciplines. And so it's allowed me to really revisit um, ideas that I had in the past and take them in new directions. And I don't have to consolidate them into a book, but I can write on um, for example, the critique of consent, which was the lecture that Jacob Erickson invited me to do, and the, the work that I'm now doing on Notes of a Crocodile. And it's an invitation to discover a number of different new fields, which, which is a wonderful position to find yourself in as an assistant professor, because rather than having to nail down, this is my discipline, I get another few years to explore. Well, it's just so exciting. And, and I know that you'll, you'll keep in touch with us. Obviously, you're still part of the Hub community, um, but, uh, but tremendous to hear how well things are going 
I'm going to bring things to a close by uh, saying a few thanks. Uh, Jacob, thank you very much for uh, spending time with us and reading from Lilith's work. As always, Francesco Rafferty, great job uh, with Aoife King in the background, making sure the fellow in focus is run properly to the right standards. Thank you very much uh, to everyone who's been listening and uh, the people who sent in some really lovely comments, Lilith, and I'm just noting Sheila Kavanagh there popping up uh, in the Q&A uh, to say how great it is to see you and how great it is to hear from you, Lilith. And I think, Sheila, we would all um, echo that. Lilith, it's just been an absolute pleasure to have you back with us uh, and to spend some time hearing about where you've been in your work and now where you want to go in your work. Do come back to the Hub and talk to us again very soon. But for now, our best I'd love wishes. to. Great to see you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks Bye. so much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.